0: Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This week, we are proud to feature a session from the 2019 Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices Program. This session was entitled Navegando La Vida, The Stories of Manny and Juan. Authors Daniel Acosta and Matt Mendez each share their debut novels and the struggles of their lead characters Manny and Juan, two Mexican-American teenagers fighting for identity. Toby Weiner is the moderator and begins the discussion by inviting the authors to introduce themselves. This is part one of a two-part series.
1: Welcome to the Pima County Public Library's Nueces Raices Tent. Thank you for being here at the Tucson Festival of Books 2019. I'm very honored to be here. My name is Toby Wayner. I work at the main library downtown, um, and I have the very special honor to be here every year to interview authors. Uh, this panel, Navegando la Vida, Stories of Manny and Juan, will end in one hour. And so that's my hope here, is that we can have a discussion in our community uh, that's relevant to all of us. So welcome to our conversation. And I'll just let you introduce yourselves briefly, if you'd like. I'll just say your name and and your books. They're both recently young adult published novelists. Uh, So Daniel Acosta has published Iron River, and Matt Mendez has published Barely Missing Everything. So if you want to just give us a brief description of where you grew up, what brought you into writing maybe, and then we'll jump into more questions.
2: So I'm uh, Matt Mendez. I'm a fiction writer. I've written Barely Missing everything's my debut uh, YA novel. I'm also a short story writer. I have a collection of short stories out. It's for adults. It's, named, it's called Twitching Heart. I'm originally from El Paso, Texas. I was born and raised there. Yeah. <laughs> And that's where, uh, that's where Barely Missing Everything takes place. I live in Tucson now. I've been here since 2000. I'm a graduate of the U of A, proudly.
3: And uh, welcome to the festival. Okay, my name is Daniel Acosta. And before I say anything more, I'd like to thank the Arizona Festival of Books for inviting me. It's really an honor to be here. And I want to thank you for attending this um, this panel discussion. I'm honored that you would spend your time with me and Matt and Toby. Thank you very much for attending. I grew up in San Gabriel, California of the novel. And uh, a lot of my neighborhood kids that I grew up with, and we're all old old fogies now, uh, ask me, well, well, which one is me? Which one is me? Which character is me? Or I know who this person is. You know, so they want all the chisme about who's who all the dirt this book is uh very autobiographical but don't ask me who is who and did that really happen to me because i i uh, take artistic license i i maneuvered and massaged the stories and the experiences i had and i combined my experiences my observations of people um, the stories people told me into a novel and i'm thrilled that at 72 years old my age, not the book. The book was my first book is published. So people say, when's your next book coming out? Well, it took me 72 years. So I would say around 144.
1: (laughs) Okay, thank you. I was speaking with a fellow moderator uh, in the author lounge. Um, It's his first panel. And so I was trying to help him try to alleviate a little of the anxiety and he said one of his uh, issues that he was having was it'd be hard to talk about the books without revealing spoilers and I said that is exactly my problem with both both of these books we can only talk about the plots and the characters to a certain point and then we're just going to have to Move on to another question or something because there's so many. You know, we could spoil something. So, but without spoiling, can you tell us about the story, maybe, and just basically about our main characters?
2: Well, barely missing everything's about two young boys who come from, you know, difficult families, and they grow up along the border and they face, you know, difficult situations. And uh, Juan, uh, as the story progresses, he gets. His mom discovers or gets letters from uh, an old boyfriend who's on death row. And Juan discovers these letters, and he starts to believe that this man uh, could be his father that he's never met. And uh, as he becomes more curious about his identity, he starts to uh, cook up this plan to to meet his father. And uh, there's three point of view characters. The other point of view is JD. And JD's family life is beginning to fall apart. At the beginning of the story, his mom is uh, ransacking his room, and she discovers these. Uh, she discovers an extramarital affair that's been going on, and uh, his family life is deteriorating. And then the third point of view character is an adult woman whose name is Fabi, and she discovers early on in the book that uh, she is pregnant, and she doesn't know exactly what she's going to do about that. And all three of these stories kind of interweave together, and it comes to a climactic ending.
3: Iron River has uh, three points that it rotates around, three axes. Uh, The first one is uh, Manny Man on Fire Maldonado. His nickname is Man on Fire because he has uh, a red-headed kid, flaming red hair. He's got a purple birthmark that goes across his face and onto his shoulder, and his friends said he looked like a man on fire, so that nickname stuck. He's the protagonist, the main character, and the narrator of this book, so without trying to sound arrogant, I'd like to think of this book as a kind of a cross between Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Even though it's told by a child, kind of like Huckleberry Finn, it's not a children's book. It's a book for people who can look back to being 12 years old and remembering how powerless you were in the world of grown-ups. And things happen and people would make you keep secrets and entrust things to you and expect things of you. And you didn't know why and nobody would explain it to you. And yet you were expected to navigate the 12th year of your life without crashing and burning so this book revolves around um, three incidents Uh, one incident is Manny and his three friends throwing fruit at hobos the book is set in San Gabriel California which is a suburb a working class suburb of Los Angeles 10 miles east um, right on the Southern Pacific railroad tracks so the boys live right on almost on the tracks literally and um, they pick fruit from uh, one mother's uh, orchard and throw the fruit at the At the train, and when they realize they had to clean up, they go to uh, pick up the fruit and they find the body of a hobo dead on the right of way next to the tracks. The police are called, and who should show up but the racist cop that they have been warned to stay away from because this guy picks on the Mexican people who live in this neighborhood. The guy is uh, incredibly brutal, and throughout the course of the book, his brutality increases in intensity until finally a tragedy occurs at his hands and Manny, Man on Fire, is the only witness. So he has to decide whether to testify against this racist cop and risk the consequences from the police department or even the cop if he walks or step away, let somebody else deal with it and let justice wait one more day. So that's his dilemma. The second thing that happens in the story is Manny's junkie uncle comes home from prison on parole. His dad says, stay away from him, from Rudy. He's bad news. He's brings shame to the family. Stay away from him. Well, Manny has only met Rudy once when Manny was five years old. So he wants to know, who is this man that looks so much like my dad? Except, uh, and and what happened to him that he would turn left so badly or whatever, go derail. His life would turn out so bad. He's dying to know about his Uncle Rudy, but uh, he's been prohibited from from doing that. And the third event is the death, the murder of a black teenager. So this isn't, uh, you know, I'm not giving away the whole story. But um, it's the cop who murdered, brutally beats to death a black teenager at the abandoned train station. So the Iron River, the railroad, plays a big part in my novel. Thank you, Juan. Okay, thank
1: you.
0: You're listening to authors Daniel Acosta and Matt Mendez and moderator Toby Weiner in a session entitled Navigando la Vida, The Stories of Manny and Juan, from the 2019 Festival of Books, curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raíces Program on 30 Minutes, from 91.3 KXCI Tucson.
1: Now, they're both novels, they're both fiction, um, and you mentioned that some of it's semi-autobiographical, maybe, you know, with art- artistic freedom. But I, as a Library staff, I love to ask about research. Do you use your libraries to do research? Even though it's fiction, I know sometimes there's a lot of research involved. Did either of your books involve a lot of research? And can you tell us about that process? Do you physically go to your library? Do you just search online? Do you use your library card for all your databases? Or do you do hands-on? These are cities that you grew up in. But what kind of, you know, was there research involved?
2: Uh, For me, there was a lot of research involved. And actually, uh, I wrote a majority of uh, barely missing everything inside a library. So it's one of the writing spaces that uh, I like to sit in when I'm, when I'm writing, to be surrounded by the books and the library, and just the, the community that's inside a library to me, I find really relaxing when I'm writing. So here, uh Lauren, one of the librarians, the reason I gave her the advanced reader copy is because that's the mission is where I wrote a big part of uh, Barely Missing Everything. So that place is really important to me. As far as research goes, uh, the criminal justice system is a big part of uh, barely missing everything. How it works, how it can be unfair to Latinos, and uh, while it's not a not a book about the criminal justice system per se, how it, uh, how it affects Latinos, how uh, unfair sentences, seem like in, in uh, Daniel's book, the the big mean cop who's in there. That's also a large part of uh, what happens in *Barely Missing Everything*. And I feel our two books are actually in conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. If you've read them both, the situations that are affecting the, the characters in in his book in the in the fifties are very much happening to the characters in *Barely Missing Everything* in you know 2019. Yes, indeed, yes. Right. So, uh, I did a, a lot of research about you know the the death penalty, the criminal justice system, and I used. A lot. Of, I've read different books. i read David Dow's autobiography of, uh, of an execution. I got online. I searched the Texas Department of Justice website. And... And uh, a big part of the book is Mondo's letters. And he's this character who's, who's, uh, who's off, off, the, off the page, so to speak. He uh, is writing letters from death row. And he's communicating with his ex-girlfriend, who is a point-of-view character. And he hasn't seen her since he committed this crime when he was a teenager. And he was in love with Fabi. And he committed this, this heinous act. And his execution date is coming. And he's writing these letters back to her, wanting to reconnect, wanting her to visit him. So he starts writing these letters, and he's concerned about his last words and what his last words are going to be. And uh, if you look on the Texas Department of Justice websites, it's this huge database where they collect all sorts of information, the crimes these men have committed, their statistics, like, you know, where they were born, uh, the last date of their education, how far they went in school, where they're from, where their families are from, and they also... Uh, collect their last words so the last thing they say is is written down and recorded and it's Mm -hmm. just held there for posterity so as he's writing these letters he's worried about what his last words are going to be and to me it was I sat there and I read tons of uh, these men's last words and really the last words of people that are immortalized So that's like a big theme of the book and I did a lot of research in the library trying to to get these down because I wanted, when I wrote this character, I wanted his last words to feel like a lot of these men's last words and uh, a lot of them are... Are not hopeless, but they're thoughtful, and a lot of them are afraid and jumbled. And I wanted that that feeling to to be in the book. And then I also wanted to show kind of like the cruelty of that website and to show like the pattern of people who wind up on death row. How a lot of them don't have a lot of education, what demographics they come from, and kind of the cruelty of that system. I wanted that to kind of be a, a big part of the book and to show kind of the unfairness of that system and how people from marginalized communities
3: are treated. Thank you. Thank you. Iron River has... I did some research on the internet on trains because um, uh, there's a a couple of scenes where... Especially one scene where Manny is describing the various uh, boxcars. Now, we don't have boxcars anymore, although I must say, one day, Linda and I, my wife Linda, raise your hand, Linda, hi. We went to... Chino, California, and there's like a cemetery for boxcars there. They're lo- they're in a row, and they have some of them have a lot of graffiti on them. But we were surprised to see rows of boxcars, and that brought back a lot of memories. And. Uh, living across the street from the railroad tracks when I was Manny's age um, It was fascinating to me to see all the cars the colored different colors of cars and different train lines That were attached to just one train an assortment now they have these um, Containers and they all look kind of alike except for the graffiti on them So I did some research online to various to the various train lines so I could be accurate because you never know when a tra- any train buffs in the audience. here? <laughs> oh uh, no! Okay, I'm safe. Uh, you never know when a train buff is going to read, and nothing spoils a story more than an inaccurate detail that tells the reader you don't know what you're talking about and they generalize about the rest of the book so you got to be careful uh... as far as the criminal justice system i had the good fortune of having a friend who's the former um, LA county um... not attorney what do you call him? district attorney and so i ran the story past him and he says it looks okay so that was enough for me <laughs> uh... let's see what else about research oh since there's no railroad people in here i i'll give you a uh an insider <clears throat> at one point the train stops in front of the house in front of the tr- on the tracks in front of manny and his best friend danny's uh, and uh... This sits there for a while this is day after this is the fifth of july the day after fourth of july so there's nothing to do uh... and so they decide they want to look for duds the firecrackers that haven't gone off on the street the train stop and then they say let's look for um, flares. Let's see if the caboose is open. Um, I found out that in trainmen talk, a caboose is called a crummy, C-R-U-M-M-Y. I don't know why it's called a crummy. Uh, I suppose uh, going inside when they're pretty crummy inside I suppose but I don't think that's that's why but um, that, was a, that was an interesting detail so the boys get into the caboose it's unlocked one of these rare times so they go in there and they're sneaking they're looking around opening and closing cupboards and the train starts and so they look at each other with big eyes and what are we going to do so they go out to the back porch of the caboose and by this time the train is moving too fast and it's too high a jump from the steps to the to the gravel um, side of the of the railroad tracks so they're on the train so they go back to the caboose they don't get off until the distance from here to Phoenix the train finally stops at a railroad yard a couple hundred miles away and uh, the railroad, one of the railroad men uh, finds him in the caboose, hauls him to the office, and dad, two dads, two tired dads have to drive on, uh, not on a freeway, but on uh, surface streets from here to Phoenix to pick up their two boys. So you can imagine what those boys uh, met up with when the dads got there after a long day's work. All right, thank you.
0: You are listening to authors Daniel Acosta and Matt Mendez and moderator Toby Weiner in a session entitled Navegando La Vida, The Stories of Manny and Juan, from the 2019 Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raíces program on 30 minutes from ninety-one point three KXCI Tucson.
1: Now, Matt, you said you had previously published some short stories, but these are both of your first novels. But have you been writing your whole life? Um, Did you write when you were a kid? Um, Do you write for your kids, Daniel? Um,
2: How much of writing has been in your life
1: uh, since it began?
2: No, I ended up in a creative writing class as a senior in high school, but only because I'd been placed there for being a pretty delinquent student (laughs) in another class. So it was completely by accident. So after being removed from a class, from being a troublemaker, I ended up in this creative writing class with uh, Elroy Bode, Bode, who was this really wonderful Texas writer who uh, passed away recently, sadly. But in his class, I kind of uh, I I took to writing really well and kind of shined in that class. And uh, me being kind of, you know, I guess thick, you would say, uh, when I left that class, I decided, like J.D. in the novel, that I was going to be a filmmaker. And uh, like J.D., you know, I had no idea how to become a filmmaker. I didn't... There was no arts program in my school. I didn't know anybody else who who knew how to be a filmmaker. So the reasonable thing to do seemed to be to join the Air Force to pay for film school. (laughs) So I I joined the Air Force and spent four years active duty and then I got a job here with the Air Guard and came to the University of Arizona to do do, uh, media arts. And while I was in the media arts program, I minored in creative writing to kind of do screenwriting. And when I was doing that, I, I discovered books, and I discovered uh, you know reading short stories. And I, I picked up uh, Sandra Cisneros' book. And from then on, I, I, I developed writing and a passion for writing. And I had really great uh, writing instructors. Arlie Sheehan's in the audience, who was one of my creative writing instructors who kind of nurtured me along and taught me how to write and it's just become a joy to me and from then on I've been just inching forward writing and that's how my career kind of took off.
3: Fantastic. Before I talk to you about my writing career, um, I'll talk to you about my reading career. My mom told me that um, when I was uh, being potty trained she'd stick a comic book in my hand and so uh, now that I'm 73 years old my wife tries to take the comic book away from my hand, no not I, <laughs> <laughs> She. Still, she'll say, though, I still spend too much time in the bathroom reading. Um, so I, I I was reading at a really young age, and I had a cousin kind of like um, Manny's cousin, Cruz, who just bullies the heck out of him. He's a teenager, and Manny's 12, and they share a room at Grandma's house, and the guy just nonstop bullies him. And so I had a kind of cousin like that. And and uh, he would quiz me and punch me if I got answers wrong. So just to stay alive, I'd have to read up on stuff. And so I, I became an avid reader. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school, I wrote a short story. And my teacher said, wow, first time I'd ever written a short story. He says, Ron, this is good. You have talent. Well, teachers out there, just tell your kids they have talent. You'd You'd never know. You just don't know what it feels like when somebody says, you can do this. So I started writing after that. When I, um, gra- when I graduated from the Army, after I was drafted and I got out of the Army, <laughs> went back for my teaching credential and uh, became an English, te- English teacher. Uh, I didn't have time to write it just with grading essays and you know uh, dummy I should have been a PE teacher those guys would stand in the corner on the field smoke cigarettes (laughs) you know and then go home and then coach and get extra pay for that and then go home you know and I'm going here what did I why did I become an English or the math teachers who would have the kids do all the problems on the board and And they never graded any math paper. So here I am, like a fool, grading essays, constantly say you can't put a comma, and they keep making the... Anyway, never had time to write. So finally, I retired, and oh, my Lord, I have time to write. So I wrote the first four drafts of Iron River on my iPad with a Bluetooth keyboard in the kitchen from 6 a.m., to 8:15 a.m. when Linda would come in and say, okay, shut it down. And that would be five days a week for four years. Uh, didn't work on Saturday and Sunday. So Sunday night, I'm like a drug addict. I got to get back to the keyboard. Nope, not till Monday morning, 6 a.m. So I'd start the coffee and start right. Uh, I had a couple of, sh- I don't- I'm not a prolific writer. I've had a couple of short stories published. Uh, mainly because uh, I don't like a lot of what I write. So finally, when I write something that I like, I send it out. And thank goodness somebody has liked it too. Especially, thank you to the birds from Cinco Puntos Press who believed in my story. And so I'm grateful for that. So my writing career is just starting at 73. <laughs> wow. <laughs> thank you. So I often
1: say on my panels, as a moderator, it's sometimes hard because you feel like you've got to think of all these great questions and fill the hour and everything. So I love to look at questions, on, of lists of questions. And sometimes I run across fun questions to ask. And I thought this one was great. Is being a writer a gift or a curse? And I, I'd like to add, is it a gift or a curse or both? <laughs> Do you feel it's, it's more on one end or the other?
2: Uh, it's a job. <laughs> no i would never say it's a curse i mean we we choose to do it and i i love writing and i've always i've always had stories in that have always kind of flashed through my head and i've always been good at telling stories and talking to people so i i love writing i guess like like daniel i have a a pretty early morning writing routine i get up at four in the morning and i'll make the cup of coffee and I'll sit there and I'll get on my computer and I'll just write about 10 in the morning on the weekends and then I'll have a marathon writing day on my day off from work. I'll go to my, now I'll go to my wife's office and I'll bury myself in her conference room and I'll write from four in the morning till three in the afternoon and, I love doing it. So to me, it feels like a blessing to be able to sit down and be around words and work through an idea. And anybody who knows me knows I like to solve problems and think ideas through and to, and to work. So for me, writing is the chance to do that. It's a chance to communicate with people. It's a chance to, to express yourself. It's a chance to solve problems in a way. It's a chance to you know, have ideas and, and, and to tell stories, which is really what I love to do. So to me, I would never consider it a curse to do that and the chance to come in front of people and, and talk to them it's never a curse in my opinion I love doing it great
3: if you look at my body you'll see obviously I'm not a starving artist <laughs> um, it's a, writing is a blessing for me it's, a, it's been therapeutic it's been a, a way to go back to my own especially with this book it was great therapy for me there are e- events in the story that are very personal. I cried writing them and I cry reading them and I cry when I hear somebody else talk about them because they're so painful and personal. But it was wonderful to put them out there and uh, not care and and discover that other people are hurting too and they could identify with the pain that that this book uh, expresses. Uh, It's a blessing for me now Uh, unlike Matt here um, I don't do it for a living. I sit back and get my um, teachers' retired teacher's pension every month, like clockwork. And so uh, I write not to have to do it for a living, but because I, I love to write. And I love to discover stories. Not so much, well, tell them too. But it's thrilling to discover a story. And then to write it down. And then to discover more about it. And discover What does it have to do with me? It could be a story about somebody else, but eventually it'll come back and reflect who I am. So all of the characters in this book and all my characters are, I I think I told somebody yesterday that all art is autobiographical anyway. And so uh, a lot of me is in here in the various characters. I am all those people. I'm a composite of all of them, the worst of them and the best of them. Um, Yeah.
0: You've been listening to a discussion entitled, Navegando La Vida, The Stories of Manny and Juan, from the 2019 Festival of Books, curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices Program. Authors Daniel Acosta and Matt Mendez have been discussing their debut novels and the struggles of their lead characters, Manny and Juan, two Mexican-American teenagers fighting for their identity. Toby Weiner moderated. This has been part one of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30-Minute Program page at kxci.org.